This is VOA News reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown. Buckingham Palace has released more details about the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth and her internment on Monday. AP correspondent Charles de la Desma reports. Buckingham Palace has released details of proceedings which will follow the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II on Monday. Two minutes of silence will be observed across the UK at the end of Queen Elizabeth II's state funeral at Westminster Abbey on Monday, giving the public across the nation a chance to pay their respects to the late monarch. Then Elizabeth's coffin will be transported through the historic heart of London from Westminster Abbey to Wellington Arch near Buckingham Palace on a horse-drawn gun carriage with Charles and other royals walking behind. Charles de la Desma, London. Ukrainian officials said a mass grave with more than 440 bodies was discovered in Izium and northern Ukraine, where Russian forces were ousted just days ago. A Ukrainian counteroffensive pushed Russian troops from the region last weekend. The Russians had been occupying the city of Kharkiv in that region. Ukrainian officials said the troops left behind large amounts of ammunition and equipment, according to a report on Reuters. Reuters could not immediately verified the Ukrainian claim, and there was no immediate public comment from Russia on the allegation. Ukraine and its Western allies have accused Russian forces of perpetrating war crimes there. Russia has denied targeting civilians or committing war crimes. Meanwhile, President Biden announced another $600 million arms package for Ukraine, the 21st time the Defense Department has pulled weapons and other equipment off the shelf to deliver to Ukraine, according to the White House. By remote, this is VOA News. President Biden is touting a tentative deal that averts a potentially devastating railway strike here in the U.S. AP Washington correspondent Sagar Magani has that story. This agreement is a big win for America. At the White House, the president greeted labor and business negotiators whom he says worked 20 straight hours to reach an agreement. I don't think they've been to bed yet. Trying to avoid a strike that would have started tomorrow, disrupting passenger traffic and freight lines, which the president says deliver essentially every good Americans need. Everything you rely on. He says the deal can avert significant economic damage. Sagar Magani, Washington. The White House press secretary on Thursday denounced the practice by the governors of the state of Florida and Texas of busing migrants to Washington and other locations as a cruel, premeditated political stunt. The office of the Florida governor said planes carrying migrants were sent to the wealthy resort island of Martha's Vineyard on Wednesday night, while the Texas governor said his state intentionally sent two buses of migrants to the home of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris in Washington. Officials in both locations confirm the arrivals. The actions by the governors, both fierce critics of the Biden administration, are the latest series of moves by Republican governors to transport migrants to liberal cities and states to protest what they say are inadequate federal efforts on southern border security. An intelligence report validates U.S. predictions of the threat from the terror group Islamic State AP correspondent Norman Hall reports. According to a newly declassified report, U.S. intelligence officials predicted two years ago that the Islamic State group would likely regain much of its former strength, particularly if Western forces reduced their role in countering the extremist movement. Analysts said many of the judgments in the 2020 report now appear prescient, 
particularly as the group is resurgent in Afghanistan following last year's American withdrawal. The group no longer controls huge swaths of territory or staging attacks against the U.S., but it is slowly rebuilding in Iraq and Syria and fighting local governments in places including Afghanistan. Norman Hall, Washington. The U.S. Congress is moving ahead on bipartisan action, strengthening trade and defense ties with Taiwan as the self-governing island faces new threats from China. The U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee approved the Taiwan Policy Act, clearing the way for $6.5 billion in enhanced security, funding over five years to come up for a full vote on the Senate floor. The measure would also designate Taiwan a major non-NATO ally. For more news, join us at voanews.com. By remote, I'm Michael Brown, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butting in Washington. Today is Friday, September 16, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Fuel prices hit record height in Kenya as President Ruto ends fuel subsidy program. The situation the president has inherited was not sustainable. It's unfortunate and uh, it's going to cause a price spiral within the economy. Nigeria drops to Africa's fourth largest oil producer, South Sudan announces the graduation date of the last group of its unified army. Gambia and the environmental conference taking place in Senegal. Difficult discussion on Ukraine predicted at next week's Biden-Ramaphosa meeting. The U.S. having taken a very clear position on um, supporting Ukraine to kind of eject Russian forces from uh, Ukraine will be lobbying South Africa quite hard. And Queen Elizabeth II's coffin led through London to lie in state. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's posts are coming up on Daybreak Africa. are digging deeper to buy basic commodities and fuel products as prices continue to rise. This after the government partially removed subsidies that cushion consumers from the global hike in oil prices. Experts say government support could not be sustained, and it was good for the Ruto administration to remove them. But many Kenyans are angry and ask why President William Ruto had not intervened to ensure that prices don't go higher as promised. Maureen Ojiambo reports. Kenyans are facing economic hardship as fuel prices hit record highs, the first ever to be witnessed in the country. Kenya's energy regulator said on Wednesday night that it had removed the subsidy for super petrol while retaining smaller subsidy for diesel and kerosene. For the new prices, super petrol that is mainly consumed by private motorists will now cost about $1.5 a litre up from $1.3, while diesel, which is used by transporters and industries, will cost $1.4 in Nairobi. Kerosene majorly used by low-income households for cooking and lighting will cost about $1.2 a litre. Kenyan Anjoki says the price hike is overwhelming. And these high fuel prices with high cost of living can force somebody, and personally, I am now forced to work at home because I really cannot afford going 
affairs, to be honest. Many Kenyans can also find it hard because given the price of maize flour, high cost of living, not many people can afford uh, to pay or transport or go to work. Speaking during his inauguration, President William Ruto had promised to lower the cost of living and today Kenyans are asking why he has not intervened to lower fuel prices. Ruto says his administration will look for a solution. He says that the current subsidy is not effective. Our people are confronted daily with increasingly unaffordable prices, especially food and transport. The interventions in place have not borne any fruit. On fuel subsidy alone, the taxpayers have spent a whopping 144 billion, 60 billion in the last four months alone. If the subsidy continues to the end of the financial year, it will cost taxpayers 280 billion, equivalent to the entire national government development budget. With public transport operators having revised their transport charges, economic experts, however, say it is better for Ruto's administration to do away with the fuel subsidy. They say it was meant to be short-term to carry the previous regime over the election period. Economist Ali Khan Sachu says that there will be a price rise and it will cause pain in the economy. These subsidies were not sustainable. For example, the fuel subsidy, if it had stayed until the end of the year, would have cost the government $2 billion. In an environment where we're spending 57 shillings of every 100 shillings we're collecting on interest payments and revenue service, you know, the, the situation the president has inherited was... Uh, suboptimal and uh, not sustainable. It's unfortunate and uh, it's going to cause um, a price spiral within the economy. Kenya is facing inflation with the World Bank report indicating that the country's GDP will grow by 5.5% in the year 2022, less than last year's recovery from the country's economy where it grew by 7.5%. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in Nairobi, Kenya. Oil cartel OPEC says Nigeria has recorded a record reduction in oil production, dropping from first to the fourth largest producer in Africa behind Angola, Algeria and Libya. The report comes just days after industry insiders said Nigeria had lost the top position amid massive oil theft and vandalism at production sites. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries' monthly oil market report for August showed that Nigeria's production stood at 980,000 barrels a day, a decline of more than 100,000 barrels per day compared to July. The figure was just about 50% of OPEC's target for the West African nation in August. For decades, Nigeria has been Africa's largest oil producer, but in recent years, theft and sabotage at production sites have hampered output. Petroleum authorities say more than 200,000 barrels are lost daily as a result, and that the trend is costing the country millions of dollars in revenue. Oil was once Nigeria's biggest earner and contributor to national GDP, but the latest data shows information and communications technology and trade contributed more during the second quarter of this year. Abuja-based oil and gas expert 
Emmanuel Afemia says he's worried about Nigeria's current situation. At this particular point in time, when the oil price is rising, Nigeria is supposed to sit back and be enjoying revenue and um, inflows of forex through the sale and export of crude oil. But the reverse is the case. So it's really a negative thing for the country. Falling from that position of being the biggest producer, Nigeria would um, slowly be losing its um, influence in the global oil market. Nigerian authorities are also raising concerns. Last Friday, President Muhammadu Buhari said the situation was putting the economy in a precarious situation. And earlier this week, Nigerian lawmakers sent a delegation to oil-rich river state to investigate the problem and report back their findings to the Senate. But oil and gas expert Faith Nwadishi says authorities must share the blame too. It's a question of uh, pointing one finger when four fingers are pointing back at you. If government were doing enough, I don't think that we'll close our eyes and see our major source of revenue being stolen up to 90%. I want to see a situation where government is taking more action than crying out. Petroleum authorities and security operatives have been working to halt the oil theft raids in late August led to the arrest of more than 100 oil thieves and the recovery of millions of liters of crude oil and diesel. Mele Kiari, head of the National Nigeria Petroleum Company, says the clampdown is making progress. What is most difficult to manage today and daring for us to, to, to live with is the issue of crude oil theft. We are not helpless and our efforts are paying off. Authorities in August awarded a pipeline surveillance contract to a former militant who once stole oil and vandalized pipelines. The move was criticized by citizens, but officials say the former militant's expertise will help prevent theft. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will meet U.S. President Joe Biden at the White House on Friday with trade, energy, and security all on the agenda. What's not officially on the program but will likely be discussed, according to analysts, are the two democracies' differences over the invasion of Ukraine. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. Ramaphosa's first visit to the White House comes as the Biden administration seeks to re-engage with Africa in the wake of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's recent visit to the continent, during which he launched Washington's New Africa strategy. During the trip in August, Blinken stressed that the U.S. sees Africa as an equal partner. However, at their meeting in Pretoria, South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor accused Western nations of bullying Africa in trying to get countries to condemn the invasion of Ukraine. At that meeting, it was very clear that uh, South Africa and uh, uh, the U.S. were on uh, different uh, paths and trajectories as regards many issues. Bob Wakesa is director of the African Center for the Study of the United States at South Africa's University of Fitzwaterrand. He says Ukraine will likely come up again when Biden and Ramaphosa meet Friday and predicts the two leaders will have a difficult discussion on the issue. The U.S. having taken a very clear position on um, supporting Ukraine to kind of eject Russian forces from uh, Ukraine will be lobbying South Africa quite hard. South Africa abstained from a UN vote earlier this year to condemn Russia's invasion. Afterwards, Biden phoned Ramaphosa. A White House statement after the call said Biden had emphasized the need for a clear, unified international response to Russian aggression in Ukraine. 
Stephen Grews, head of the African Governance and Diplomacy Program at the South African Institute of International Affairs, said Ramaphosa and Biden will discuss other issues as well, but adds Ukraine cannot be avoided. On the agenda will be trade and investment, issues like climate change and food security, energy, peace and security in Africa. And of course, what's not officially on the agenda, but will certainly be talked about, is the war in Ukraine and the differing positions of South Africa and the U.S. on that particular conflict. Cruz said he thought the Countering Malign Russian Activities in Africa Act, which passed in the U.S. House of Representatives and is now being considered by the Senate, would also come up in the two leaders' conversation. African countries see the act, which would sanction nations that trade with Russia, as an attempt to punish them for not voting with the U.S. on Ukraine. In December, Biden is set to host the U.S.-Africa Leaders' Summit in Washington. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, September 16. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley Sports. A South Sudan military spokesperson says September 30th is the date that the country will graduate the last group of the unified forces stationed in the Equatoria, Upper Nile, and Barigaza regions. The country is expected to integrate and deploy them within the South Sudan Police Service, National Security, Wildlife, and other organized forces. Waka Simon will do reports for VOA from Juba. Major General Lulroy Kwong says arrangements for the graduation of an estimated 30,000 forces have been completed. He says the government is set to meet its September 30th deadline for the graduation of the 52,102 unified forces. The high-level graduation committee have been meeting uh, and came up with graduation plans for the remaining uh, necessary unified forces in the three regions. And today we met and submitted a proposal on when we thought these forces should be graduated. Toto Galuak is the chairperson of the National Transitional Committee, a body responsible for the implementation of the 2018 peace deal. He told the journalists at his office in Juba that preparations for the graduation of the forces are on schedule. Now we are meeting with governors where the graduation will take place in their respective states. We want to see preparation for the graduation and the reception of the federal delegation from Juba. It will not be a graduation similar to what we had in Juba. It will be done at South Sudan level. Therefore, there will be no presence of leaders from outside, only peace monitors and guarantors from, from Sudan and Uganda, who are members within the Transitional Committee. Galuak says some challenges, including floods, are hindering the preparations for the graduation of the unified forces at some training camps in areas affected by heavy rains across South Sudan. You all know that South Sudan at the moment is facing difficulties accessing some areas. We have been discussing the issue of unity state. We decided to relocate the trainees from Kalja to Bentio. They had to move on foot 
with the help of our police forces, and they are now in Bentiu ready for graduation. Major General Kwang says while funding for the graduation has been approved, some technical challenges are hampering the process. We have not yet succeeded uh, in, in, in delivering uniforms for greater, for greater Alanil, as well as we have not yet distributed food for the same region. For greater part of the result, we are able to deliver insufficient ration, but the uniforms also are yet to be delivered. And the issue of uh, floods, the force that we have in Pantip has been cut off by floods at, uh, at the stream. There's a stream at Nyamlel, we cut them off. The Army spokesperson says a date for the deployment of the forces who graduated last month in Juba is yet to be set. Chapter 2 of the Revitalized Peace Agreement stipulates that 83,000 forces from the various armed groups in South Sudan shall be cantoned, screened and trained in the first phase of the security arrangements as part of the country's unified forces to safeguard the peace deal. For VONOs, I'm working Simon Wudu in Juba. The 18th African Ministerial Conference on the Environment is taking place this week in Senegal's capital, Dakar. Dauda Baji is executive director of Gambia's National Environment Agency. He spoke to Ricky Stryak about environmental issues in the Gambia and what he hopes the conference will bring to his country. I decided to work on nitrogen because, you know, in Burkina, the government is spending a lot of money for rice importation. They also make a lot of effort to increase the rice produ- uh, production with uh, managing of a different area of irrigating system uh, in Su Valley, Ku Valley, and also Bagre Valley. But we still have a, a low yield. The, the rice yield was very low. Many studies show that uh, nitrogen is the most limiting nutrient in rice production. So I decided to work with international fertilizer development on a new technology called uh, urea deep plasment with uh, urea supergranule. And the objective of this study was to increase rice, irrigated rice production by increasing nitrogen use efficiency and also nitrogen loss. Where exactly did you guys uh, do your work in Burkina Faso and what were the results? Work in Ku Valley and also Suru Valley. And uh, with the technology, we were, we were able to, to increase the rice production about uh, 25% and also reduce nitrogen loss about 12%. What are your hopes for the future with this method? Okay, uh, for now we we train a lot of uh, a lot of farmers in many areas in Burkina Faso, uh, and also the adoption is also good. And uh, the but what the farmers are, are demanding us is to work on like uh, applicator to facilitate. Uh, the application of the, the urea. So it will be very fast and also uh, less, uh, less costly, like it will be cheap uh, for them. That was Dauda Baji, Executive Director of Gambia's National Environment Agency. We are speaking to Ricky Stryak from Dakar, Senegal. The body of Britain's Queen Elizabeth II was taken from Buckingham Palace on Wednesday to Westminster Hall, where she will lie in state for four days ahead of her funeral on Monday. Henry Ritual reports from London. 
leaving home for the last time. Queen Elizabeth II's coffin, adorned with the imperial state crown, was carried by horse-drawn gun carriage, the same that had borne the bodies of her mother and father. Tens of thousands of people watched from the roadside to catch a final glimpse, offer a last goodbye, and witness firsthand an extraordinary piece of history unfolding. King Charles III led the royal family behind the coffin, flanked by his siblings. Behind them, reunited in grief for their grandmother, Prince William and Prince Harry. The crowd watched in silence. Some threw flowers, some quietly wept. All were moved in the moments of shared mourning. Margaret Stork was visiting from Bristol in the west of England. So proud, I feel elated. That's all I can say. Filled with emotion, it was well worth the wait. Gun salutes echoed across the capital. In London's Hyde Park, thousands more people watched on big screens. Under late summer sunshine, the procession arrived in Westminster, a journey the Queen had made so many times before across seven decades on the British throne, stretching back to the government of Winston Churchill. Her coffin was carried into Westminster Hall by guardsmen from the 1st Battalion Coldstream Guards who had flown back from Iraq for the occasion. At the end of a brief service, the Queen's body officially lay in state. The doors of the Great Hall opened for the public to mourn their monarch. Outside, lines of people several kilometres long had already formed. They could face a wait of up to 27 hours. Most seemed unperturbed. Westminster Hall was built in 1097. It hosted King Henry VIII's coronation banquet in 1509, the trial of King Charles I in 1649. For the next four days, the hall is playing no less a historic role in this ancient kingdom. Hundreds of thousands of people are expected to view the coffin. Elizabeth's funeral will take place on Monday in Westminster Abbey before her body is taken to Windsor, where she will be laid to rest next to her late husband, Prince Philip. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News, London. It's time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson Umale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too. James will begin the sports with the draws for the Beach Soccer Africa Cup of Nations Mozambique 2022 scheduled to take place on Friday. The final tournament will be held in Mozambique between the 21st and 28th of October 2022. The competition will feature eight teams divided into two groups of four teams. The qualified teams are from Mozambique as host nation, Senegal, Nigeria, Uganda, Madagascar, Malawi, Egypt, and Morocco. Staying with the competition of African football, the 2022-2023 CAF Champions League season continues this weekend with the second leg fixtures of the first preliminary round taking place across the continent. A total of 24 matches will be played between Saturday and Sunday, while the match between Zamalek of Egypt and Elect Sport of Chad will take place on the 25th of September 2022. Al Hakli of Egypt, Esperance of Tunisia, Mabalodi Sundowns of South Africa, Raja Club Athletic of Morocco, TP Mezembe of DR Congo and Wadded Athletic Club of Morocco have all received a bye into the second preliminary round. 
Staying with football news, top Zambian club Zanaku FC have appointed former Nigerian international Emmanuel Amuneke as their new head coach. Coach Amuneke is expected to travel to Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, in the next few days to resume his new role. Zanaku last won the Super League division in Zambia in 2016 and came second in 2021. The last league game saw them lose 1-0 at home on Sunday against Forest Rangers. The biggest secondary school sports fiesta in East Africa will officially get on the way with the 20th edition in Arusha City, Tanzania on Friday. The event, organized by the Federation of East Africa Secondary School Sports Association, will attract over 3,000 students from host country Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya and Rwanda. The schools will compete in different sports disciplines which include soccer, basketball, volleyball, handball, hockey, netball, rugby, badminton, table tennis, tennis, athletics and swimming. Games organizing committee chairperson is Justus Mugisha. Generally speaking, starting the games has not been easy, but we are very happy that uh, the games are kicking off because this one, uh, this tournament, the culmination of uh, uh, very many games that have been played right away from district to zones, to regions and to national levels. Much as there have been a lapse of three years, the competition is expected to go up and uh, you can see it in the participation. In rugby news, former South Africa rugby players Sandili Nkoba and Philip Senman will lead a new era for South African national rugby team, the Blitzbucks, after being appointed as the coaches of the Springbok Sevens team on Thursday. And that's it for Daybreak African Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a great weekend. And that's it for this Friday, September 16th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I'm James Botti in Washington, wishing that you will have a great